This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today on our show, Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And Bob, you today's topic is especially interesting to you because you've got some background in media law. That's right. I practice media law and I, I write a blog about media law in addition to my other blog law sites. You can find both of them at the URL LegalLine.com, L-E-G-A-L-I-N-E.com. And you also write another blog. Uh, that's right. I write media law and law sites, both at LegalLine. And I write, may it please the court, which can be found at virtually any extension, dot com, dot biz, dot whatever. Um, and I understand that last week's show on Kachina is up on the website at Legal Talk Network. But today's topic is, uh, are bloggers journalists? All the rules have changed. What is fact? What is fiction? And who knows what the difference is? Are blogs mostly expressions of the writer's opinion or are they news? Isn't it really just a high tech expression of the term freedom of speech? That's right. We're going to talk about uh, that issue and uh, some of the broader legal questions surrounding bloggers. We're going to talk a little bit about the Apple v. Doe's case uh, in California and uh, touch on some shield law issues. I thought it was appropriate to mention uh, that today marks the 75th day that Judith Miller of the New York Times is, is in prison. Uh, and uh, anybody wants to keep track of what's going on with her can go to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press website at rcfp.org. Well, I think we should introduce our guest today, Bob. Today we've got Kurt Opsvall. Kurt is the staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation focusing on civil civil liberties, free speech, and privacy law. Before he joined EFF, he worked at Perkins Coie, where he represented technology clients, with respect to intellectual property, privacy, defamation, and other online liability matters. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And next, uh, we'd like to introduce Jeff Lewis. Jeff is a partner at Enterprise Council Group in Irvine, California. He also writes the SoCal Law blog. And uh, he wrote the uh, amicus brief for the Bear Flag League in the Apple v. O'Grady case. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is Wendy Seltzer. Wendy is a visiting assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, teaching Internet law and privacy. Wendy founded and leads the Chilling Effects Clearinghouse, which is a product to, a project to study and combat the under, ungrounded legal threats that chill activity on the Internet. She also writes her own blog entitled Legal Tags, Musings of a Techie Lawyer. I think that's at wendy.seltzer.org.blog. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks very much. Good to be here. And finally, we'd like to introduce Bill Felling. Uh, Bill is a longtime broadcast journalist, and he's the national editor for CBS News. Uh, he's been national editor of CBS News since ni- September 1995. He's responsible for CBS News domestic news gathering operations, working closely with the division's hard news broadcast to cover big breaking stories as well as the stories of the day. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, Bill. Well, thank you. I guess I'm the only non-lawyer in this crowd, too. And you may be the only uh, uh, person whose journalistic credentials are, are beyond dispute in this crowd as well. Uh, given that, let me start by putting a question to you. Uh, 
Uh, is there? Do you see a line of succession from uh, Edward R. Murrow to Joshua Micah Marshall? Well, is, is the question our bloggers, journalists? That's the question. Absolutely, in every in every sense of the word, it's just a question of the medium that they happen to be doing it. I don't I don't think there is any question that bloggers are journalists. I think journalists one aren't aren't really professionals in the classic sense that licensed by any government agency. You don't have to achieve some sort of uh, pass some certification or board to be a journalist. Uh, People come right out of college and go work for radio and TV stations and write stuff that appears on you know, on radio stations and in newspapers and on on TV, and they're they're called journalists. I don't think there's any difference at all between bloggers who write and journalists who write. It's just a question of the medium that they they get in. The difference is that in, in news organizations there are editors who are checking the copy and going over it. In bloggers there tend to be editors, but in terms of what they are by definition. You know, they're writing on general interest of news and, and public events for an audience outside of themselves or someone they're sending a, a letter to. I think that kind of by definition makes them journalists. They could be they could be legal journalists or they could be entertainment journalists, but they're still journalists. But what they don't have is the, the benefit of an editor. Well, bloggers or actually uh, journalists didn't really start out with editors. When you go back to the founding of the country, I think Benjamin Franklin didn't start out with an editor. He didn't, and, and he was he was a journalist as well. Of course, I'm not saying if you have to have an editor to be a journalist. I'm saying that our bloggers journalists, and the answer is absolutely yes, in my opinion. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Um, probably not surprisingly, I agree fully there. I, I think, I mean, as the Supreme Court has said when it has looked at speech on the Internet, uh, speech is entitled to as much protection online as off. That's uh, the bloggers have found new media to speak, new audiences to speak to, uh, is a great expansion of our freedoms of speech and of the press, uh, and that they should have uh, the same protections for that speech as they're granted to offline journalists in uh, more traditional media. Well, it, it seems that there's not total disagree- total agreement, at least on, on the question, and there's uh, the case pending in California right now. Kurt Upsall, that you represent one of the plaintiffs in, is, if I understand correctly. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that case and what the issues are there? So we actually represent uh, some third-party journalists who have been subpoenaed in the case, uh, Apple v. Doe's, and the Doe's in that case are uh, the people, presumably Apple employees, who may have leaked some information about an upcoming product. Uh, and uh, uh, the two online uh, news sites, AppleInsider.com and PowerPage.org, published articles citing two confidential sources about this upcoming product, uh, and Apple wanted to find out the identity of those sources. So they're not actually parties to the lawsuit, but more third-party witnesses. One thing I wanted to say is, as we're going through this, you know, the question raised here, um, are bloggers journalists, uh, is often the question raised, but I'm not sure that it's the right question. Uh, rather, I would say, you know, can journalists blog? What makes somebody a journalist is not dependent upon the medium in which they choose to express themselves, and the constitutional guarantees of a free press do not discriminate based on medium. Uh, but rather, what makes a journalist a journalist is what they do. And, uh, so we're advocating for a functional test. If someone is gathering information, uh, news and information for dissemination to the public, they're acting as a journalist, 
and therefore should be entitled to the First Amendment protections for uh, confidential sources. Well, it isn't a question beyond that, really, what legal protections are afforded to bloggers. And if they are classified as journalists, they may be entitled to certain legal protections, at least in California, under the S.H.I.E.L.D. law. Is that the issue in California? Well, there's the S.H.I.E.L.D. law in California, which is actually a constitutional uh, provision in the California Constitution. And then there's the baseline, the First Amendment, which provides a qualified uh, reporter's privilege to uh, uh, anybody who is acting as a journalist. And that uh, First Amendment privilege has been very broadly applied. Uh, courts have realized that the liberty of the press is, is the right of the lonely p- pamphleteer uh, as much as uh, the large metropolitan publisher. And bloggers really are like the lonely pamphleteer that the First Amendment was designed to protect. Jeff, you jumped in here to the uh, Apple versus Doe's case involving Jason O'Grady. Why did the Bear Flag League get involved? Well, the Bear Flag League is 136 uh, California bloggers who, at one time or another, have uh, engaged in fact-gathering uh, investigations for reporting of uh, news of public concern and have either faced the same issue in terms of uh, having the First Amendment rights chilled or will face it in the future. So we as a group decided, uh, uh, by the way, I should disclose I am a member of the Bear Flag League as well as their council, um, we decided that we should uh, weigh in on this issue and inform the Court of Appeal that uh, their decision may have long-standing effects on how bloggers uh, uh, feel in terms of their freedom to accept confidential sources and when they receive a confidential tip, whether or not they can uh, feel comfortable telling their uh, anonymous source that they can remain anonymous. I wanted to jump back to Bill for a minute and ask him kind of a loaded question of whether all bloggers are journalists or whether there are some subsets of bloggers who don't gather news and just draft opinions or put their opinions out there, whether they constitute journalists? Well, I think so. I, I think you can go to any newspaper and find people who are putting their opinion out at, at some point, and, they're kind of, and I think they count as journalists as well. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. Well, what does it mean if we call a blogger a journalist? Why, why do we... That's the thing. It doesn't mean a thing. Calling them a blogger or calling them a journalist or calling them... Uh, it, the, difference, the difference is, are you, a, are you a letter writer to your mom, or are you, are you sending it out through some medium that allows for wide, de- wide dissemination of your points of view? Well, does it suggest a higher responsibility on the part of the bloggers? I mean, you mentioned the lack of editors. Do, do bloggers have a responsibility to reveal conflicts of interest, to uh, fact-check, to... Uh, uh, if know. they want to gain credibility among their, among their peers and be believed, a couple of times if, you, if they turn up their facts are wrong, then they'll lose credibility and their blog won't be read. It won't be looked at. It won't be thought of as credible. It's in their interest to have it be as credible and as good as they can make it. Just as it's in our interest to have our stuff be as accurate as it can, as it can be. Now, maybe we're held to a higher standard. Maybe, maybe we make one error a year and we get held up for, for a long time. Maybe they can make an error every three or four months and no one says a big deal about it. But errors, everybody makes errors and I'm not so, I'm not so sure that, uh, you know, that they're, they're, they're held to a higher standard by their peers. I wondered if I could quick jump back to Kurt for a second and just follow up on a, I, I believe it was Kurt who made a comment about the First Amendment protection. And I, I know the California courts have, have, uh, interpreted the First Amendment as, as providing protections, but I'm not sure all the courts in the country, uh, have, uh, applied that protection as broadly. And, uh, obviously we have the situation of Judith Miller being in prison right now. And so the First Amendment isn't, is clearly not an absolute protection. What, what, what? Well, the Judith Miller case is a grand jury case in a criminal context. 
And civil context, you have had cases at the circuit level uh, interpreting uh, the First Amendment to include protection of qualified privilege, and that has come to the Third Circuit, the uh, Second Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, uh, the Tenth Circuit, uh, and the D.C. Circuit have all had some cases that have uh, been supporting this qualified privilege in civil cases. So it's pretty well established. Well, uh, there certainly it hasn't been decided by the by the Supreme Court in in a way that people consider to be well established. Um, Wendy, uh, I wonder if I could ask you a little bit. You've you've been working with an organization called Chilling Effects, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and, and how that relates to the question of the legal rights of bloggers. Sure, uh, Chilling Effects is a project of Electronic Frontier Foundation and several law schools around the country where we collect cease-and-desist letters that have been received uh, or by uh, online writers. Uh, and so th- these are letters that will threaten them with uh, copyright infringement or trademark infringement, uh, defamation claims against them. Uh, and uh, the Chilling Effects Project sets out those letters, publishes the letters, uh, along with law students' annotations, there to help people, to help the general public understand what their rights are uh, in the online and offline context. Uh, Because one of the things that we were seeing, uh, particularly in the early days of online journalism uh, and online publishing, is that lots of the uh, online writers not only don't have editors, but don't have lawyers. They don't have anyone to tell them uh, that the legal threat they've gotten on fancy letterhead isn't worth the paper it's written on. Uh, and so they were self-censoring because they didn't recognize their rights. And Chilling Effects uh, aims to help people understand their rights and the limits on their rights uh, so that they can leave speech up when it is, in fact, protected. Uh, and have a, a bit more confidence uh, in what they say online. Jeff, before the show started, we were talking a little bit about uh, California's anti-slap law. Do you, how do you think that plays into the situation that Wendy's talking about and the Apple case? Well, uh, I was telling Wendy before uh, we started this uh, show that uh, it's absolutely vital in California. It provides a great protection for the little guy to go into court at the beginning of a lawsuit, and uh, when they get... Overpowered by a big law firm, uh, for the little guy to, to come in and quickly tell a judge that, look, my First Amendment right gives me the right to publish my website, and you don't have to wait years and years and years for a lawsuit to be resolved. This uh, anti-slap uh, statute provides a quick remedy at the beginning of a lawsuit to decide the First Amendment issues up front. And Bill, mainstream media suffers from the same problem occasionally, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, and the benefit of the only protection you have is to have a strong kind of management or ownership that is willing to uh, to realize that, that anybody can put a letter on letterhead and anybody can file a lawsuit and to have the courage to keep going once they have that. It, it, was, it seemed like it was easier years ago when individuals who were driven by public service owned kind of the, the media outlets. Uh, I mean, there were many more TV and radio stations that were individually owned Certainly, the large networks were just owned by people who ran networks and didn't also run uh, widget factories and uh, and auto parts you know did distributorships and they're less likely to want to go through the 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 legal trouble and the, and to keep the staffs uh, the legal staffs in place on you know, in on their payroll to fight these things back when they come up because 
corporations have have large legal staff, and to them, uh, you know, a quick lawsuit filed, knowing that it'll take years to come down the pipe, if it can just if it can just cause someone to pull their punch a little bit, then they've achieved what they wanted to. I think that large corporations aren't exactly as willing to uh, to fight those battles as freely and as and as often as as uh, as they were in the past. I mean, when CBS was first started, Mr. Paley. He was running a business and he had a big entertainment, but he but he knew he had to keep defending his news department against other kind of assaults like that. He had to go to the government and get a license you know, every four years for all of his TV stations. So those, and he was willing to take those chances and spend the money to have the the lawyers to do it. It's uh, it's not it's not as freely spent or as easily given these days. Well, this is a little off topic, but it's a question that, as a lonely little blogger out here in Southern California, I've been dying to ask somebody from big media. How does media, that your level of media, view bloggers? I think we can't read enough of them fast enough. If we'd, if we wouldn't be in such trouble as we are now if we'd been reading them about, about a year ago. The, uh, yeah, there, you have to read a lot of them. There's millions of them out there. You've got to read a lot, and you have to pinpoint the ones that really know something. I mean, uh, five years ago, Matt Drudge wasn't, you know, wasn't given a lot of respect. Today, Matt Drudge is probably the widest read news web page in, in the world. People go to He's like the standard page that everyone reads after they've read page six of the New York Post. They get there real fast to see what Matt does. So I think it's... Uh, you have to you have to pick and choose the ones you want to keep on top of. You want to you want to listen to what they say. You want to you want to know what's floating out there. It's uh, it used to be, you know, some years ago you'd have AP, UPI, and Reuters, and you get up in the morning, you'd read the you know you read the ten national papers, and you'd read the wires, and you thought you knew what was going on. But now you can't do that. You got to read you know the top thirty blogs out there every day. You've got to read certain web pages. You've got to those are kind of standard reading every morning, and you divide the even smaller blogs and web pages up among members of your staff. So if you've got a staff of 15 people working on your desk, everybody's got 10 blogs or, or 15, and so by the end of the day, you've read 150. That's how, that's how you have to do business today. We're, we, we have uh, only a few minutes left in this conversation, but I wanted to ask Kurt uh, whether you've looked at the bill that's uh, pending in Congress to create a federal shield law and what your interpretation is as to whether that would protect bloggers. Well, I've looked actually, there are, there are a couple of bills uh, that have come forward to try and extend the, uh, the privilege into a statutory context. Uh, and depending on how they are drafted, they could be used to protect bloggers. One of the bills that uh, hasn't moved uh, forward particularly well is using uh, the show-in test, which is to the functional test, uh, those who are gathering information for dissemination to the public. And we think that would be uh, a great way of phrasing it uh, and, and could be used to uh, protect bloggers. Other bills are a bit more limited, and what we've heard is from some people in the House uh, have suggested that uh, explicitly protecting uh, bloggers uh, may be a difficult thing to uh, to put through Congress. So if we want such a bill to move forward and uh, uh, cover bloggers in its uh, coverage, uh, Maybe some lobbying or efforts uh, could could help that. Well, I think you said earlier that it's a question of function or versus affiliation. Depending, look, what does the blogger do versus who does the blogger work for or not work for? Is that really the issue? Well, it has to be a question of function because if you put other uh, parameters up there, that someone has to be you know, working for a major newspaper or working for uh, an accredited agency, then all of a sudden you get to a point where it's similar to licensing of journalists, giving the government too much control over who gets to speak out and who doesn't. And if you privilege one group of speakers over another, this can lead to a 
choking off the free flow of information, the, the lifeblood of a functioning democracy. Well, I want to take the time here to thank everybody for participating. It's been just a really stimulating discussion. Uh, Wendy and Kurt and Bill and Jeff, uh, thanks for taking the time this morning to talk with us. And I'd like to leave everybody with a Ben Franklin quote that says that one person can be a writer, printer, and publisher all rolled into one. And let me join in thanking the guests uh, for participating. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, Craig and I will talk about some news from the blogosphere. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. Now, from the legal blogosphere, host J. Craig Williams from the great state of California and Robert Ambrogi from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Uh, it seems that the major story now for, at least around the legal blogosphere, is what to do about Sandra Day O'Connor's position. Yeah, and any thoughts on that, Craig? Well... It seems to me that, uh, from what I've been reading, that everybody expects another, uh, or at least a centrist to be nominated for that position, uh, with Bush at his, uh, all-time lows for popularity. I don't know that he can step out there with, uh, a true conservative and appoint someone, uh, to take that. Although it is one of those lifetime appointments in a situation where you, you know, you leave a lasting impression and a legacy as a president. So maybe you do use up the remaining 37% of the political capital that you've got and make that nomination. Yeah, I guess I think that's probably a realistic approach. I, I, uh, pointed a, put a pointer on my blog to uh, maybe some extreme wishful thinking, uh, a column by Nat Hentoff in the, in the Village Voice on, on, uh, uh, citing the memory of Justice Brennan and his ideas about who should be on the Supreme Court. But, of course, that's not going to happen. Well, and the Volokh conspiracy, and I'm never really quite sure how to pronounce uh, Eugene's last name. Volokh. Volokh. Uh, he has endless speculation about uh, what what's going to, who's going to be nominated and actually has a couple short lists of his own. That's right. Uh, I, I just, I wanted to point out, this is a, a, a plug for myself only because it's related to the topic, uh, in, on Law Technology News on their website, lawtechnews.com. Uh, I write a column for that magazine and, and my current column is a roundup of websites dealing with media law. So it's pertinent to, uh, the topic of our show today. You can find that at lawtechnews.com. Now, is that a takeoff from your book? Uh, no, I write a monthly column for them called WebWatch, in which I kind of wrap up uh, interesting websites for lawyers. Well, I was reading uh, 
blog.org, which is one of my uh, favorite things to read from uh, because of his fairly wide coverage. And Bill Gratch, who writes it, says that uh, he hasn't seen any paralegals in the blogosphere lately. And it appears that uh, I knew of, I think, one or two legal secretaries. One of my more favorite named sites was Legalities, written by a, a legal secretary, which hasn't hasn't been updated in a long time. But um, Bill said that he's found only two blogs authored by paralegals, and they appear to be losing steam as well. And I wonder, Bob, based on our discussion today uh, about bloggers and journalists, whether bloggers as a whole are losing steam, whether there's going to be a shakeout uh, in the industry and, and leave only the Matt Drudges of the world and, the, and what some people call the A-list of bloggers, uh, or whether you think that there's going to be, uh, you know, what is there now, 12, 15 million blogs listed on Technorati? I don't know. I, I, I confess to uh, one uh, board day this summer trying to start to count legal blogs and see if I could come up with a number, and I, I got uh, way too bored and way too in over my head and gave up on it. But it's interesting. I, I was just uh, going through some old bookmark files and looking at some blogs, legal blogs, that I had bookmarked a couple of years ago. I've been doing this almost three years years, and I, I think you've been doing it maybe longer than that, Craig, and uh, I, I've noticed that a lot of the blogs that I had bookmarked a few years ago are no longer active. Uh, some of them obviously have, have remained quite active, and, and uh, their bloggers have become uh, quite well known. Uh, Ernie Svensson, who we had on the show last week, has been doing it a long time. Denise Howell, who does Bag and Baggage, has been doing this for a long time. Uh, Sabrina Pachafici, uh, another great blogger. Uh, but uh, uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of commitment. And, uh, uh, you know, some people see the payoff, some don't. Uh, you know, you were written up this week in uh, U.S. News and World Report for a mention of your blog and your podcast. Uh, and uh, I, I, if that if that article was correct, you attribute having gotten a, a million dollars in, in billables to blogging and RSS. That's that's significant, but I don't think all lawyers have had that kind of experience. I would call the monetary success that we've had an unintended consequence of something that I love to do. Uh, I love writing, and I love uh, I find that it keeps me tremendously more informed uh, as a speaker, as an individual. Uh, maybe it's just cocktail conversation that you gain, but it's simply uh, I read a lot more cases than I had ever read before. Well, and connected, Craig. Here you and I are talking to each other on coast to coast, and uh, had it not been for blogging, we would not know each other. We've now had the good fortune to meet each other. There's lots of people that I've gotten to know around this country thanks to blogging, so the payoff uh, is, is in many layers. It is, and it's been tremendous to be on the show with you and uh, to be able to have met and uh, I hope someday to get out to Gloucester and actually visit with you a little bit. Sounds good. Well, I think that's our show for today, and uh, it was a great discussion. And uh, thanks a lot, Craig. I look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. 
Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.